Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. The podcast is brought to you as always by Yesty Boys and Tea Leaf Tea. Um, this is a conversation with Murray Kamek, a New Zealand music industry legend. Uh, where to start with Murray? Well, I guess rip it up. He uh, founded the magazine and was its main editor for its duration. Um, he worked in other magazines and created other magazines, Shake Magazine. Uh, he's a writer, an editor, a photographer. Uh, he's become a uh, in-demand DJ in the last few years in Auckland. Um, he set up two record labels, uh, was there for the birth of bands like She Hard and Head Like a Hole. Um, and his photography has flourished in the last few years uh, in that he is doing exhibitions. So I caught up with him uh, when he was in Wellington for the launch of his um, exhibition at Photospace Gallery, which you can see now, uh, um, cars in Auckland in the 80s. And he's um, going to hopefully bring his music photos down. I had only met Murray once. We've corresponded. Um, we got into some mild argy-bargy over uh, um, a disagreement around um, a, a, a gig review that I did, but um, you know we we get on fine. And uh, and it was nice to sit down and chat to him properly. I think he borrowed my headphones one night at Golden Dawn DJing, and we had a nice chat then. And that was the only other time we'd met. Um, so I'd wanted to talk to him for a long time because he spans you know several decades of New Zealand music industry shenanigans, and uh, he's met. Uh, lots of people, he's helped lots of people, and he's um, you know someone that a lot of people admire, uh, myself included. He's one of the people that's paved the way for some of the things that I've done, and he's been in my mind a lot uh, in that regard. So it was wonderful to sit down and get his story. Um, this is me talking to, I call him New Zealand music industry legend, Murray Kamek. You and I have only met one other time. Very briefly at the Golden Dawn, we were doing a DJ handover. I think I met you when you were at CD Store. Oh right, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was just going to say, I feel like I've met you more than that, and obviously you're one of those people. I feel like I know you better than I do because you're, you know, you're you're one of the reasons I've ended up doing what I'm doing. Like you're yeah, one of the people I've, I've read I've and I've read your, your name. I see your stuff on Facebook. Too yeah, and yeah, yeah, and I know. I mean, we have corresponded. I know. We have uh, followed each other in some sense for a while, and that. But yeah, it's interesting. I thought we've really we haven't sat down and talked. And I thought your rev- review of um, Bobby Womack was unfair. You were even you, though we were at different. We're at, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. You were unha- <laughs> you're unhappy about that, and that's and you're allowed to be. Um, and you know, uh, a lot of people were were just pleased to see him, and I thought I would be too, but I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. But we were at different shows. We were at different shows. I was in Sydney. I didn't even think I was going to see it. I, so I don't think you would have written the same review for Auckland at all. Really? You no. just—it was a much better show. No. It was good. It was a good band, um, and there were things I liked about it. But yeah. as it went on, I just got sadder and sadder yeah, about well, the idea. The that whole Australian thing sounded sad. Yeah. 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 I was over there to see um, Craftwork. Mm. So I went to those shows, two mm. of those shows. So it was just a bonus that I got mm. to see that. Mm. Um, but I don't have to. I don't have to suck up to you and say that I'm a Bobby Womack fan. But I am. <laughs> you know, that's that 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 was why that review was written that way. It was, and it's funny. Like I went to around the same time, maybe a couple of years earlier than that. I went to BB King, mm. who was well past it mm. and shouldn't have probably been out here and playing. Well, I'd heard that, so I yeah. avoided it. Yeah, and I I loved it because to you me, <laughs> I know that's what I'm. Gonna, so to me. 
that for some reason I just sat there and I forgave all of the madness around the fact that this guy was a shadow of his former self and any playing ability. I was there to kneel down at the altar, which I think a lot of people were with Bobby Womack. But for some reason I couldn't forgive him of that, which places me as the giant hypocrite that I am, as anyone is when they write. Mm. Um, you're reacting in and of the moment, and you're not, you're not going to get it right all the time. Yeah. I, I, my favourite live soul performer is Solomon Burke, and I saw him in the last years of his life at Byron Bay, Bay Blues Festival, mm. where he sits in a throne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a, a person who had been in London 20 years ago said... I never went and saw him because he didn't stand up. Well, yeah. how ridiculous. The voice is 100% yeah. there, if not 200%. And when I saw Aretha Franklin, I wanted her to sit down and play the piano. Mm. She's such a fabulous piano player. And she sat down at the piano maybe twice or three times in the whole show. So he's saying Solomon Burke should uh, stand up. And I'm saying Aretha Franklin should sit down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have different <laughs> expectations. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and as I say, like, you, you go to things and you, you know, sometimes you think, well, I wish I didn't have to be the person who wrote this. Mm. Well, I well, I've I've had that experience. Mm. And, of course, now, um, because we've almost cancelled music journalism, certainly in a paying sense, mm. I, I do have that luxury. I do sometimes go to shows now and... Uh, don't write about them. I just enjoy, even ones I love, I just enjoy them and I don't, I mean, I'm so, it's so hardwired in me that I, and I have my own website that I, I will sometimes still just write a review, mm. even when I've paid for my ticket and I, you know, I did that when I saw PJ Harvey the other year. I, the promoter wouldn't give me a ticket. I bought a ticket. They said they didn't want reviews. I went along. The reviews I saw of it were really averagely written, but mostly enthusiastic and I just woke up the next day so blown away by the show I felt like I had to say something about it but then there are other times where it's just like no I'm just going to enjoy this for you know yeah I, I made this strange decision uh, this century is probably the era um, to not take photos of the sole musicians I went to see because I wanted to sit down and enjoy it And but I did try and write down a track list mm. um, just to I, I sort of had to choose how to remember this best yeah, yeah. and um, I, I wasn't necessarily going to be in good positions to take the photos and I didn't want um, my opinion of the show to be affected by the lighting being bad or something. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, my way of enjoying it was just to try and write down the set list and that's about it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, let's go back to how you first connected with music. Well, it would just be like every every teenager in Auckland at the time, anyway, was Radio Haraki, mm. I think. But 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 you connect immediately, really, when you hear your first song. So I would have um, I loved the '60s music, and I was born in 1953, so I would have heard all the music on the radio um, in the '50s too. Uh, so I think I just connected with music as soon as I heard it, you know, uh, and I became obsessive about buying music and certainly in the 60s and I used to get a record mirror magazine from the U UK, it used to arrive three months late but record mirror um, 
was good for a child, as I was then, mm. because it had some colour pictures. But inside it was very serious and obsessed with Stacks Vault Review by 67 or so. So for some reason at primary school I became this obsessive Otis Reading fan. <laughs> you know, and I recall, you know... Uh, you know, being held in a headlock, you know, Beatles versus Otis Redding and stuff by a friend. It's yeah, completely yeah, yeah. A friend who's likely to listen to this, so <laughs> anyway. That's that's so funny, though. Did, did you, have you ever worked out where that kind of compuls, compulsion came from to collect? Like, have you ever thought about that? I, th I feel like a lot of people who are lifelong collectors don't want to actually delve into the why. The hoarding thing. Yeah. Um, the um, uh, hoarding, where does that come from? Well, collecting, like a lot of things I collect have, have really been assets later in life, you know. A lot, all, the, all the punk um, posters I um, kept, you know, paid for at least one trip to the USA and back, mm. and and recently a whole lot of old posters sold at Webb's auction, and you know, was good money. So, um, but you're not doing that with that in mind to begin with. Oh, I I was con obsessed with poster art at some point, mm -hmm. probably university, and I mm -hmm. just thought posters were the uh, more sort of. Uh, um, democratic form of art you mm. know I wouldn't say socialist form of art but mm. I, I was very um, you know the people's art and and I still believe that you know mm. but I sold my people's art most of it anyway to um, to uh, you know allow me to travel a bit and stuff mm. like that mm -mm. but so you you grow up obsessed with music pretty at a pretty early age and and interested in the 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 format, like having yeah. to own it and have it and collect I th it. I think inherently I'm one of so many children who would have, you know, wanted to be Elvis Presley and then mm. found that strumming a guitar was a bit like hard work and the moment you get on stage with your guitar school, everything stops and I did nothing <laughs> other than hold the guitar. <laughs> and then, you know, you have friends who could play notes with feel and I was going boom, 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 like with no feel. And as, and so it's a wanting to be, um, and I was saying to a girl, well, you know, it, I probably wanted to be Mick Jagger to explain mm. my involvement in music. And, and she just said, well, everyone did. <laughs> mm. Everyone mm. wanted to be Mick Jagger. So that was her opinion. Mm. 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 But you, you know, what was going on at home? Like, what was, what, what was your childhood like while you were collecting and, and and teenage years while you were collecting the stuff and obsessing over it? What was what was happening? Well, well um, you know, I would be playing. See, I've always thought that I'm the person who's heard the most Otis Reading in New Zealand, mm. and the number two person who is has heard the most Otis Reading has to be my mother <laughs> through the through, through the, door. the lounge to the <laughs> yeah. kitchen where she would sort of confine herself to all the house except for the lounge where yeah. the family um, a stereogram would be mm. uh, so yeah it uh, yeah and the obsession from for, I think most people who love music um, would like to have been in a position to perform it and um, you know, in my case, I even clap flat. 
<laughs> the music is like to people who care about it, it I guess the thing is it, it has a magic about it right like that's the thing it has this mm. untouchable you know even people who learn to play very well and have a technical facility they might not be able to access the magic and people who bypass the the virtuosity route yeah. they might have a direct path to the magic and and that's and and yet it can be it can be both you know like you know yeah, people who, some people can have quite raw musical ability yeah. possibly a joe strummer yeah and, and have something to say yeah and, or some way of saying it or mm, both yeah yeah and, yeah and he just walks over all the people who have the ability but nothing to say so. mm. Mm-mm. And so, but you end up doing something, well, many things, but you end up doing something with music to begin with that that not many people um, who are in the same position as you at the same time would follow through with. Yeah. How does how does that, I mean, how do you take the step towards going, well, I'm going to actually, you know, catalogue this and this, I'm going to publish, I'm going to put yeah. things out into the world. Where does that come well, from? Well, it was reasonably logical in the sense that I... I was enamoured with the idea of my photos being printed in newspapers, so Crackham, the student newspaper, I'd take photos for them. And at the time I thought um, photography galleries were a bit elitist, though about that time I ended up running Snaps Gallery, the photography gallery, for a couple of years. So I was a a mess of contradictions. (laughs) Um, But I did... I did design Crackham in 1976, which gave me the ability to, you know, stick down and, um, you know, do the whole lecture set, stick down the copy and design a magazine. Mm. So that meant I had that aptitude to do Rip It Up. And Rip It Up emerged about a year after Hot Licks went bust. The the company that owned Hot Licks... um, uh, you know, failed rather than the magazine. So th- the perception was that other people would step into the gap and put out a magazine. A friend of mine, Jeremy Templer, was going to do it in about a year's time and me and Alistair Dougal went ahead of him, which is a bit unfair. But um, <laughs> we heard that Hugh Lynn, he had gone to lunch with Roger Jarrett, the Hot Licks editor as did me and Alistair to talk over the concept and Roger said well Hugh Lynn's thinking of doing one a magazine so we moved very fast to be there first you know Mm -hmm. and you know what was what were those can you remember what those first days months even first couple of years were like because they get written about now as you know the birth of a legend um, was it really that exhilarating though, or was well, it just sort of nervous panic and we don't know what we're doing? No, no. Well, we sort of knew what we were doing technically, mm. but if you look at the first issue, the centre spread is my photos mm. of the Commodores, mm-hmm. and I think the hot and we had strong split ends coverage because things were going on. Mike Chun was leaving at that point. We were both Hello Sailor fans. I'm not the original editor, of course, Alistair mm. Dougal is. Mm. And he's a musician. He he is and was, obviously, a musician. And um, so, big Hello Sailor fans. And, uh, you know, because Alistair was a, a musician, he, he sort of uh, 
you know, viewed foreign acts or local acts sort of a bit on, you know, respect for musicianship sort of level. Mm. I don't mean a technical aspect, but on issue three, I was a sort of co-publisher and sold the ads and did the design and stuff. And I, I said, why are we putting Hello Sailor on the cover when they play a small bar, you know, they, the the local, you know, bar they were playing was tiny at that stage. And he said, well, they're as good as any other band that comes through and plays the town hall, you know. And so I said, oh, fair enough. And, um, and of course, later that year, the debut album came out and it was obvious why, by that stage, Hello Sailor had gone to big university gigs, glue pot, etc. Mm, mm. And so what? how long does it feel like you're just muddling along with this before it, it makes complete sense. Well, I was always going to go teaching art, and Alistair Dougal was um, possibly, I viewed he might be the full-time editor, because he wasn't going to go teaching, but he then did a law degree. He, I think he finished his arts degree mm. and decided to do law. So uh, it became, and I applied for teaching jobs, didn't get any. I just did one day a week at Linfield, to prove that I was hopeless as a teacher. And uh, that's when I ended up full-time on Rip It Up. Mm. Well, we should take a step back and talk more directly about your, uh, the you know, really, I guess, what is the other lifelong passion is photography. So that's, you know, you've already referenced it in terms yeah. of Rip It Up, but where did that come into, into your world? Well, it came in at Elam Art School. When I went to Elam Art School... Um, one of the things, as well as discovering Otis Redding, um, well, at last year of primary school, maybe, secondary school, I went heavily into born-again Christianity, see. So um, when I got to Elam, I think I was going to pursue painting, but I, I was only working towards a teacher of art anyway at secondary school. I had a studentship, which was quite luxurious in those days. Um, so... My aim was just to teach art, but the painting department had, a, I think, a dislike of born-again Christians, or certainly me, so I failed in painting, and I was the kind of teenager who wanted a, a quite well-structured learning environment, so photography was virtually the only well-structured um, learning environment at Elam at the time. The other ones, the painting lecturers and design lecturers would disappear into their rooms and leave the students almost to their own devices. Mm. Mm. Whereas uh, photography would be, um, we need your prints of this by Friday, put them, you know, hang them up, pin them up on the wall and we'll wander around and tell you whether they're shit or not. <laughs> it strikes me that Christianity at that point in a person's life they're only led to it by either family or friends. It wasn't family. I just got into, just got into it. You know, I mean. It, but it must have been through a group of, I just you know. Would I, have been the sort of crusader union at school. Yeah, at I just can't school. imagine a teenager finding it by themselves. Like it would be a gang. Yeah, it was just. You know, going to the Crusader Union camps and the holidays. Yes, yeah, yeah. And how long did that last? Well, it started to fade by. It was still in existence at when Rip It Up started. You know, I was still going to sort of Christian arts groups and that. But at some point it faded to the point where now the Conservative Church backing Trump 
I sort mm. almost see as the centre of world evil. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So I've sort of swung to the sort of opposite position almost. Mm. Mm. Did you ever have to have a conversation? I mean, I know a lot of people that are devout one way or another uh, follow uh, music that isn't always... <laughs> Um, in line with those tastes but oh. did you ever have the conversation with yourself about being essentially an active participant in the development of the devil's music oh, no, the, the, see virtually every record at my point at that point was black so, right, so okay. the devil's music was, was what white the, people yeah, did yeah, yeah. And, and black music was yeah. of the church yeah, and yeah, God, yeah. See, so I, I, you were on the right side of yeah, the bed yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I rationalised everything to yes. my advantage <laughs> so who changed that for you Joe Strummer Oh, it took me a while. I almost took to London Corner Calling or Sandinista mm. to really um, appreciate The Clash for sure, you know. But the first album I have absolutely no comprehension of. And the sort of stuff I liked from the punk era was Eddie and the Hot Rods, you know. And, yeah. Um, cause I, I, because I tended to work, you know, long hours on Rip It Up and I had I have a workaholic tendency uh maybe i i lack it actually at the moment but i i've tended to like sort of mid-tempo plus music like chic and yeah um eddie and the hot rods or, or the up-tempo aspect of punk is i quite like you know yeah yeah and so when does it um feel like with rip it up that it's really going somewhere like you talk about spending a lot of time working um you know being absorbed by it but when is there some is it instant the idea of any kind of payoff like an artistic payoff i think it would have been instant like it was hard work mm. well we had the problem where when we went round to the record companies like emi said we'll take oh we'll take three or four pages every issue and phonogram said we won't advertise and they would they were truthful. EMI didn't take any advertising the first year, and they said they'd take three or four pages. See, so um, at one point, I think we might have had a quarter of a page from any one record company in one issue, or I think there's maybe not that little, but we we lost at one point with the record company advertising. Generally, we had three of the five major labels, but there might be one issue where we've got one, but um, the what was sort of quite good about that is, well, if the big companies representing the foreign acts are not advertising, well, we don't, there's no obligation to put their act on mm. the cover, is there? You know, mm. well, just do the New Zealand stuff, you mm. know? Mm. And so that's sort of how the name kind of, I guess that's how it built its brand in a way, wasn't it? A little bit. And the other thing that um, I wasn't quite aware of, in a sense, but um, most of our writers were not condescending about New Zealand music. Like, they would say it was good or bad or without... Um, worrying about it really and um it, it would be said politely i presume but um we ran into little problems like um uh, i think a writer bruce belsham said mm. that um uh 
Marcia Hines album produced in Australia sounded worse or wasn't as good as Mark Williams album produced in Wellington and um, or the hut mm. and um, and I think advertising was was withdrawn from us because the representative rang me and said how can you say that an album produced in New Zealand is better than an album produced in Australia and I regret to say I had to phone the editor and ask that question myself <laughs> you know because I did have a bit of culture cringe sort of thing mm, going on mm, you know mm. um, just before Rip It Up we had gone through a quite dire period of New Zealand music where the best might have been Craig Scott you know mm. um, uh, the 60s were fantastic for a kid, you know, everything from Shane to Larry's Rebels to Lardy Dars was fantastic, but I can't think of a rock band in the early 70s that is worthy of even remembering. Mm, mm. Except for Spit Ends coming through. In the yeah, yeah, but they were all, they were sort of different really too, weren't they? Right from the get-go, yeah, you know, yeah. like, yes, now people go Spit Ends, great classic New Zealand rock band, mm. but those, really, the the, their 70s years yeah. are better described as weird and arty. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, they were, you know, I was at the same art school, but I, I hardly, I didn't know them personally. And, like, it wasn't until I saw a photo of Noel's old haircut that I remembered, oh, of course, I remember that haircut right. from Elam. Yeah. And, um, and I... The people I did know just slightly, but weren't sort of part of the same group maybe at Elon was Buster. Buster, oh, yeah. Buster Stiggs would have, uh, he might have been a year after me, I'm mm. not sure. Mm. 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 Um, and and so when, does, when do you sort of get this pride with Rip It Up that, man, you know, we just did a story that, or we just, we just featured a spread that, you know, I never thought I'd, you know, when I started this little thing, when I first got involved... We didn't think we'd get to this. Well, see, we're super fans, so um, I'm still very much a fan. So just people like, you know, a member of Hello Sailor saying they liked it or Spit Ends like Eddie or someone immediately mm. sent us for the first issue an update on Split Ends in um, the UK. Mike Chun agreed to a, a very extensive interview, which I think's issue two. I'm not sure. It might be. And Mike offered to write for us and things like that. Like these were people that initially I was almost scared to approach because mm. I had dealt with split ends when I was with Crackham and Louise Chun, Mike and Jeff's younger sister, had come in as one of our arts writers. Mm. Mm. And you know, I'm just because I'm just sort of thinking about. I mean, I've seen some of the um, archives. I've seen some of the original issues when they've been scanned and just and you know back issues. But for me, probably I really started noticing Rip It Up. It would have been not until the early to mid '80s, you know. Yeah. So and then I can re I can remember very much when it went to full colour and it stopped being something you picked up and you actually had to pay a price you know and I remember yeah that's quite late that's that's very late yeah 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 yeah, yeah. When yes that's what I say but that's like the end of my high school years so I can remember it being the thing that we always picked up until that point when you had to pay for it and I still paid for it and, and collected it and I had you know years and years of the the 90s stuff but I'm I'm pretty vague on you know it's beginning in terms yeah. of like having a 
a mental image of what it was like. Mm. I've seen some of the. I've seen some. I've seen some footage. I've seen some clips. I've seen some. Yeah, it was a bit crappy in the early <laughs> days, you know. But it was and. Like, I would take all these great photos and then I'd use them, because we had so many words, I'd use the photos postage stamp size, mm, you know. Mm. There were aspects of the layout that were just appalling and I did it. And um, <laughs> so, but it was, I... But then you were operating in that punky zine, you know, street yeah. press avenue as well yeah. right so. and the, the thing was this would apply to everywhere in the world probably but particularly New Zealand uh, there was limited music coverage in the um, newspapers yeah. during the week the the journalists who did it were you know they just took what space was available when everything else had been done you know mm, mm. The, some of them were great writers like um, Phil Gifford or Rob White and Christchurch, um, but they didn't have the space. The editors yeah. didn't give them any space, and so yeah, it was weekend roundup stuff. Yeah, and it was. Um, oh, I think it was just if space was left over. But in in the case of what we were covering, I mean, it was just a social movement. You know what I mean? The whole punk, new wave, exciting music, like the. I looked at one issue, like 79 and Iggy Pop's album is sort of page five of our review section, and you look, the other four pages are full of amazing albums, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Because Blondie were doing two a year virtually at one point, and Talking Heads, the albums can only have been 10 months or 12 yeah, months yeah. apart. And all, and all the, like, we were in awe of everything that came out on Stiff, which in, yeah. in hindsight seems to be problematic. <laughs> and in and, and Virgin, we're pretty obsessed with that. And usually someone on the staff liked, you know, Stiff Little Fingers. I wouldn't have, but, you know, yeah, I yeah. think they were Virgin. Might yeah. Not be, the, I just saw, just the other day, I saw an article, I think Rolling Stone put uh, a link to, 80, um, 80 albums from 1980 and saying, you know, was this the best year uh, for, for albums? And, yeah. of course, you can make that case about many years, but just looking at the cover, you know, just you talking about 79, just looking at the covers that came out in 1980 and going, you know, wow, like Pr yeah. Prince Dirty Mind, The, the Clash, you yeah. know, amazing. Like, And I think of 79 as, you know, yeah. they often say the last year of a decade, but... I have in my mind, you know, that there's punk, there's new wave, there's ska, there's reggae comes into f into awareness and mm. um, a new romantic and da da da. All this series of sort of waves I surfed, you know, mm, mm. and but nearly all of it's 1979. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's nearly yeah. all in that one year, yeah. almost a lot uh, of it. Well, the you know the 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 decade of music gets set up in the few years before it doesn't it always i mean i i remember my as a kid i remember loving that oh, i still like it but i remember loving that car's greatest hits album mm. but i remember it being an absolute revelation to me to find out that the majority of the things i liked from what i thought was this quintessential 80s band were recorded between 77 and 80 you know yeah. like the actually the the front end of that greatest hits which is what i loved the most mm. was 70s music but because yeah. i was hearing it in the 80s as a kid 
Yeah. And Drive was a big single, which was mid eighties. Mm. I just kind, you know, I kind of just thought, well, this is an eighties band, but they're really not. Yeah, you've got so much around that time. Even Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous, mm. you know that that I recall thrashing that mm. at the time, um, and we we liked that. Uh, but there's an amazing documentary. Um, there's two of them actually, but the BBC one is the best. But there's also um, one VHS, which is just about New York when uh, essentially punk emerged, um, rap in Brooklyn, and um, disco's hitting its peak at the same time. Mm, mm. Three amazing yeah. music movements, all in the low rent of um, New York um, of the 70s when the town was washed up. And all that happened all in you know i guess brooklyn to downtown is probably only a few kilometers mm, mm, mm. and it all happened at the, the same time you see so hip-hop traces back to mm. that 79 too yeah yeah totally and and, the, and it, it, i think it, they the first hip-hop hit is in new zealand is sugar hill gang and that's very early 80s yeah i think it's even 79 it might be yeah 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 so you know you're speaking with um about how sort of fluid this is and obviously you can link it back as the the, the great love in your life musically is soul music you can link all of these mm. things back to that in some way but you seem very open to receiving these new genres and subgenres as they're happening were there any that you were just like instantly turned off from well my f first midlife crisis was joy division and like which would put me at something like 27 or something mm. and um i just couldn't understand why anything anyone could possibly like anything so miserable <laughs> yeah yeah and i immediately hired a young person to be my trendometer as i called it <laughs> because i had just completely lost it um in terms of connection to modern music and i, I doug hood would plead with me to go and see new order and i wouldn't go near them you know uh you know the white guys coming along and doing disco when the black guys suddenly aren't allowed to do disco, that was too much for me. Yeah, yeah, Though yeah. Though it's not the same, obviously. <laughs> but I, to this day, the only um, New Order track I like is Crystal. That oh, classic. Yeah, yeah, later. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I think what, what you said about um, Joy Division then, I think I feel that about them um, most of the time, still. You know, I, I, I like listening to Joy Division sometimes, oh. but, but not that often. And I think, like, when I get up, when I listen to the album, I go, you know, yeah, okay, that's got some, you know, it's got a mood about it. But I instantly feel quite depressed. Mm -hmm. And I don't really want to revisit it anytime soon. It's funny that for this thing that is so revered in, in so many little circles. Yeah, I just couldn't understand it. But then I'm f up tempo. Yeah, yeah. R&B music that's my what i'm made for or what i, what I like but you but, know those first two velvet underground albums are very dirgy and and depressing well, see, and i weird, wouldn't but, relate to that either like, right I, but i was very exhilarated by those but i guess i was wanting to be because i'd already already knew lou reed and, and wanted to see where he'd come from but you know i don't have that same thing with those well i like lou reed but see my to me um 
I've seen Hello Sailor do White Light, White Heat, and I mm. wish that live track existed. I've seen them <laughs> do Waiting for the Man, and yeah. to me, that, that's what those songs are defined by, which I would make other people puke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think Bowie did a pretty good White Light, White Heat too, actually. Yeah, I've played that off a live album and yeah. um, got so, sort of rude <laughs> comments on BFM from someone listening. Where did DJing come into it for you? Like, how, when did that happen? Well, it wasn't really my idea. I was in the process of selling my vinyl and partly to get rid of New Zealand pressings first. Um, but I was selling my vinyl and, and Michael Hanneman asked me to play do Wednesday night at... Um, CAC bar and restaurant and so I started doing it and loved it. When is this like? This would be about 2006 or something. Right. I'd done it like I'd done I'd done, done the, the radio stuff. Yeah, I'd yeah, done yeah, Land yeah, of yeah. the Good Groove in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. Something like 83 to 90 into 93 I think. Mm. And but uh, That's a different thing to... Well that's a radio like, show. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. right. So that, that's what I was wondering is how I know you DJ a lot. Yeah. But, well, I'm only doing once a week or so, but, but yeah, but every week but I do love <laughs> you it. You do, you know, yeah, and yeah. it used to be a bit more than that. Like there were, yeah, there, used there, to you be know, a bit more. yeah, yeah. I I love doing it, and it it comes back to the fact I wanted to be Mick Jagger. I think you know, mm-hmm. um, there's something about um, just lining up a song you like or you think is going to work that yeah. other people are going to like, and hearing it through a good. Yeah. PA, basically, isn't it? But like most DJs, um, you know, line stuff up knowing it's going to go through a shit PA and hope for the best. <laughs> that's true. That's it's very true. rare you're hearing it through a good PA. That's true. But, mm. yeah, but, you know, like, just the idea, yeah. and also just also that idea that, you know, um, mm. like Golden Dawn, for example, was a good mm. venue where people were receptive enough to music, but they were also having their own good time. Yeah, well, like, I did uh, one... Sunday a month I did um, sort of jazz they called it but I would do lounge and Frank Sinatra all sorts and I just loved that you know mm. bought mm. about three or four crates of records for that Sunday night and now they sit there idle at the moment <laughs> um, when does Rip It Up really pick up to the point where you're like shit we're, we're running behind this to keep up well the problem with Rip It Up was I also did a a fashion magazine, Cha-Cha, and a pop magazine, Shake, Mm. and the debts incurred by those other two caused me to run too many... I had to run a high percentage of ads and rip it up to help pay for my problems, and I ran into trouble with Inland Revenue. At one point, I was fined 30000 in the 80s uh, for being late with PAYE or late Mm. with... And I was just being... um, I just was being getting all these awful penalties and that. Mm-mm. I think in hindsight, if it was looked over, people would say I was very badly treated. And some people have said, you didn't pay tax. I paid so much tax, you know. And then the, at the end of it, they say, oh, well, the 100000 tax you pay is somehow taxable because it, it it's you can't deduct it from your costs. Mm. So then I owed more tax. <laughs> but Shake Magazine wasn't until the, what, mid-80s? Yeah, yeah, but we were trying... We had a problem with booze ads and rip it up. The 
we got complaints against it all the time. Yeah. And um, we, we argued, we were clearly trying to make our audience tw as 20 plus as possible. And um, so is that why you set up Shake to... Yeah, yeah, to try and move the mockers move and the Billy <laughs> Idol into the Shake magazine. I remember Shake magazine very well. Like, yeah, I would have been, you know, I was just actually thinking the other day that I can remember TV ads for Shake magazine. Yeah, and I yeah. can remember um, Prince, Alphabet Street. Yeah. I think that, that image of them, that video was a cover of Shake. Yeah. yeah and... Well, uh, it was probably where I first became aware of OMD, weirdly enough. Yeah, well, the, the Shake magazine had its moments. It had a bigger readership that yeah. I put up. But we got the, the fantastic readership figure through just at the point when I gave up. I just gave up. It, it, I just I got all this advertising coming for a December issue, all sort of tampons. But it was twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 almost of ads, and I couldn't get it together. Mm. to do another issue I'd given up maybe October we tried reducing the number of colour to cut down the uh, colour pages to cut down the invoice total printing costs and I just gave up and I I didn't think of going every second month nothing yeah yeah I gave up my other shake magazine memory is winning a copy of Poison's album Open Up and Say Ah. Oh, one of five people to win it on cassette tape and being blown away receiving it. And the cover was all smashed in the mail. Oh, no. And so, yeah, I was, you, know, you know, which happened. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I was, so I was momentarily gutted. Yeah. Um, but blown away that I'd won it. And then I think my mum pointed out that I could put I the, that. I could put one of her tape covers over. She would have the shitty cracked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, thing because we were a tape family at that point. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I just think how funny that is. I mean, the amount of free music I was given sometime after that, and now arguably all music is free. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a funny moment to think that that was of such excitement to me. Well, They're I, also a band I've never really cared about yeah, apart from that particular no, well, moment. I think the first um, <laughs> Poison album had a 60s pop sort of feel yeah. to it, and I can't remember the names of the tracks I liked, but. Um, uh, yeah, I was a bit of a Poison fan briefly, and I went to see them in Australia and stay with friends in Melbourne, and I think they are on the Liberation label, and yes, I was a good were. friend with um, uh, Simon Bates, who yeah. was over there, I think, working for Mushroom, so we went out to dinner with them, and and C.C. DeVille yeah. just went down the ramp and literally fell on his guitar and just went... <laughs> And I thought that was just an, a you know a Frank Zappa like achievement in art, which is, <laughs> and he was so funny. Uh, they did a meet and greet, and he was so humorous. And... Mm. Yeah, they had they had that sort of glam send up aspect to what they were doing, but they were also you know. They had reasonable chops. Yeah, but the, at the time, um, Poison were waking him as up as near to the gig as possible to keep him off the booze. Right. <laughs> God. <laughs> and because we had tried to get in a, Janet Dawes, who was running a festival in New Zealand, I mean, Mushroom in New Zealand, she had heard how good he was and, and tried to get him for interviews, and they, the publicist said, oh, we don't wake him up in time for doing interviews, <laughs> and... And I, I always quite like humour, and um, 
he came in to meet all these teenage girls that had won the competition and and he said uh, um, something like, my girlfriend took uh, one look at my dick and said, thank God you got a big nose. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and with all these kids. <laughs> and, um, oh, and, and he said something really rude about, I think, one of the other members of the band, like, you know, <laughs> something to the effect he hasn't even got a brain or something. Uh, when do you have a moment? And I managed to do a live review describing him as a genius <laughs> because he <laughs> fell over on his guitar, like almost onto a skateboard, like well, see, on I a ramp. I instantly take more issue with that than you did with my Bobby Womack oh. one, and I wasn't, you know. <laughs> and Although I did see Poison play a few years ago in Wellington and it was like they were pretty good. Like, yeah, and that was I, know, well, I wouldn't go near them by then. But um, I did see Def Leppard when their first sort of comeback when mm. they, they were the vector, and they were, I, we really enjoyed it. Me and John Russell went. I went to Def Leppard in about 2008 with yeah. a friend, and they were really good again. That a, would probably be about when yeah. John Russell drove down from Wangarei, and we just sort of sat in the foyer and just waiting to go to our seats. and Yeah. And um, Adam Holt from Universal came in and looked at. He came out of backstage, having got some, <laughs> yeah. giving that presented, the, and just looked at us and said, "You're what in the, the right. Are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> We're here to hear our favourite album. <laughs> Al Green's on in two weeks. <laughs> You're early. <laughs> no, no. I'm, yeah, I, I, re- I went to that. I mean, I, you know, I loved Hysteria when it came out. Yeah, well, I was that the right was the age for it. And, yeah, we, and, and I liked a couple of the tracks off the album before it, but I was never a, a fan fan, or if I was, it wasn't for long, but I thought that show was amazing. They were yeah, great. Yeah, and and sh- don't you love that, though, that you can go and see, and we've, we've been in... Um, privileged position to go to shows without paying for them a lot yeah, of the time yeah. isn't it amazing when you can go and see someone and be blown away by them and you weren't really a fan yeah that happened with me in the first year where you would go and see someone like Leo Kotke and he would between <clears throat> tracks he was almost like a stand up comedian yeah. and Ry Cooter could be like that very entertaining and so I saw all these people like I'd go along to take a photo of Manhattan Transfer or Things that you know, obviously Tina Turner was, I think, seventy seven, her solo, her early solo stuff, and obviously my mind was blown by that, but mm. that because that's my scene. But, yeah, 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 um, yeah. What were you? What What was the? Who did you sort of first meet in either an interview capacity or a backstage capacity where you went, holy shit, I actually got to meet this person, either because you'd had their records growing up or just because they were amazingly charming they might not have actually been someone that you were a fan of it's hard to think of that in the sense that i was always i was so pleased to you know meet people like um you know graham brazier of hello sailor or or those people because mm. they were in spittings um but um it's, it's very... I, I've sort of avoided meeting a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's that, like, if I did a... I was very lucky to get an excellent Bobby Womack interview on the phone where 
because it was for BFM, once I'd done 20 minutes, he, he sounded like he'd talk forever and he was so eloquent. But, you know, BFM, I've got an hour show and someone has to has to tighten it up or whatever. So I didn't talk to him. But, you know, I could have easily said, well, can I go backstage and mm. meet, meet um, Bobby Womack? But that's no use to anyone. No, that's right. But if I could go back and do an interview, but I'd already done the interview, yeah, so yeah. there's no need to meet him. I used so. to get that question a lot. Um, people saying, like, when you go and review a show, do you go backstage and meet them? And it's just like, what Why? for? Why? You've got a home actually, to go to. Actually, <laughs> actually, I don't even see the encore. You know, I'm gone. I'm back in the newspaper days. I was. Got, I can remember living close to the stadium and um, actually seeing the fireworks from the Rolling Stones while I was finishing writing the review because that was the requirement. So, but even if it wasn't, even if you got to stay for the end of the show, and I remember actually the newspaper wanted me to um, leave Leonard Cohen early, and I said I'm not going to. You can. I'm. I'm not going to. Um, you can either have a review the next day or not at all. Yeah. And they were like, okay, well, just, just file it when you can and we might put it up online first. Yeah. But I wasn't going to leave that show early. No. I had to see it. Um, but, you know, going backstage and meeting him, even if it was an option, it's not something you want to do. At one point, nearly all my favourite people were nutty, you know. <laughs> um, you know, Al Green and yeah, yeah, yeah. James Brown and... I can't recall who else, but and what you really, um, what you really want from them, you've what's got, the, you've what's got. What's the point for them to meet me? Yes, you know, what's the fucking what, use? What What you've really got from them is the music, <laughs> and which you've, versa, you you really. already have. Yeah, right? that's what you. That's what you care about. I mean, people are different. I've interviewed people that have done writing jobs that that reel off who they've met, and they're very excited about it. And I'm I'm impressed because it's amazing. But it's never been my thing. Like, and I've met, I've met some famous people, but yeah. um, n almost not on purpose, and or or actually because the purpose was to interview them. Yeah, it, it's sort of like at one point I thought, well, I met Bob Marley. Why didn't I get my record signed? Mm. But I thought he would come back to New Zealand ten more times. Yes, and I was correct. <laughs> if he didn't have cancer, he would have come back to New Zealand. He'd probably 10 be more living times. here. <laughs> yeah, well, he's a you know, he was so big. Yeah. I knew he'd be back in 18 months' time, you know. Mm, of course mm. he'd be back in New Zealand, but... and But, but you, you know. did meet him. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. things like that are incredible because, yeah. you, know, f you know, we can name names, but there are people like... Bob Marley, that are the, mm. you know, Quincy Jones, whoever. Yeah, well, I that met are the him abs and, you know, yeah. and I would want to meet him. Yeah. But I met him to do an interview, you know, like he did this amazing press conference and I just said to the people, well, we print in a few weeks' time. All the press conference could be used by someone else. Can I have 10 or 5 minutes to ask my own questions? And they said, fine, and such a delightful person, you mm. know. And um, so, and, um, oh, just amazing, you know, th th though he's been promising a Stevie Wonder album for about 30 years and I'm really getting a bit pissed off about the fact he's been working on 20 albums for the last mm. 25 years and none of them come out, mm, so mm. he's still talking about working on stuff. But. Well, there's those two new, brand new Stevie Wonder singles that yeah. have just come out 
that are kind of teasing a new album. Yeah, but they're not Quincy. No, they? no, so they're you, not. Yeah, 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 no, no, I know. But even just a new Stevie Wonder album at this point is pretty exciting, the yeah. idea of it, isn't but it? But the weird thing about, um, like, Berry Gordy of Motown has at times been an absolute genius, yet he didn't want to release What's Going On by Marvin mm. Gaye. Mm. He thought it was a piece of shit. He didn't like Stevie and, Wonder for the longest and, time. <laughs> well, and he wouldn't... Uh, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye wanting to work with Quincy Jones, just absolutely no way. He's a jazz producer. Mm. Crazy. And then Quincy does Michael Jackson, an ex-Motown artist. <laughs> yeah. sort of. So in terms of completely missing the boat on some things, Barry Gordy uh, is up the top. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So what, do you, we, what makes you decide through these experiences to become a person that owns a record label well i think that would just be ego gone wrong really because i up to that point <laughs> i had just thought you know all my friends have record labels whether it be brian stuff simon Grigg, trevor Riki, yeah and i would have known roger roger was yeah next door and i just thought it's the thing to do <laughs> no 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 i thought it was an idiot's game right I just thought I would never do that. You know, my, my job's hard enough with Rip It Up. Yeah. Theirs is pointless. Yeah. And then suddenly a friend comes in and has this record, Defactions, Motivation, and none of those other people would release it. So suddenly we had a record label. And, and you know, it wasn't that much longer after that you had two record labels. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we got sort of carried away, you know. But... but it's just so um it was so it was so it was so much fun really and the thing is through the whole rip it up uh, time you know like i'd go and see screaming memes and there's such a massive energy from the audience enjoying them and just like it's great to be alive i would you know walk out of the venue thinking it's great to be alive let's just continue getting deeper in debt would rip it up, you know what I mean? So the music was in some ways inspiring me to keep going. And then with Wildside, you know, seeing the head like a hole at the building or she had on countless um, orientation gigs or that, that was a real sort of uh, energy booster to continue on the slight madness of Wildside. Uh, but, but initially there was some sense in it, you know, the first albums maybe cost 5000 um, in terms of, you know, for She Had and Head Like a mm. Hole, I think Head Like a Holes was a little less, and I think I put in 5000 for uh, She Had's album that cost a total of 10 Well, three or four albums later, you know, probably an Australian company's finding the um, 120000 or quarter of a million for a She Had album, and... Mm. I'm having to find sort of 48,000 for a head like a whole album. And by that stage, it doesn't make much sense. Mm. Um, but there's, there is an interesting legacy there. Those, you know, like those two bands are obviously Shihad is, is better known and is better traveled than head like a whole, yeah. but those two bands are well regarded still by a lot of people yeah i think the pumpkin heads had great moments yeah pumpkin head and dead flowers had probably have some of the best songs of the a whole lot of them but he, uh, dead flowers didn't succeed as 
well as a live act, you know. Yeah, why? They weren't as good. Oh, they, they weren't. just weren't as good live. And <laughs> Head Like a Hole, she had those first albums where we had them on student radio, but we the material wasn't suited to commercial radio, mm. uh, certainly on the first two albums by each of them. Um, it was great to have, you know, you didn't even think of getting this stuff on commercial radio. We had Max TV in Auckland just thrashing everything we put out from the moment the video appeared on their doorstep. And we had um, Cry TV and Christchurch being supportive and Channel Z Wellington massively supportive for the Wellington bands. People still mourn Channel Z. <laughs> I know, and Channel Z Christchurch supporting Slim. Channel Z Auckland initially were just, you know, getting their playlist from Texas or somewhere. Mm. So they weren't playing New Zealand acts, except for maybe they squeezed in the Mutton Birds. But then Ross Goodwin left Channel Z Auckland and someone came in. Uh, um, it would be David, I think, who's running um, NZ On Air. What's his oh, name? Riddler. David Ridley yeah, mm. came in and he basically made Channel Z Auckland pretty similar to Channel Z Wellington mm. and um, they were really good times for media, you know. Mm. Who's been the most difficult group to deal with? Uh, I don't mean musical group. Yeah. I mean you have interacted with and intersected with um, uh, media, uh, musicians and then record company folk and then yeah. sort of radio TV promo people well I, I don't know see we were usually had distributors you know um, so festival or BMG would do most of the media uh, liaison but we would just sort of I would handle the individual queries like if um, she had were in Auckland and um, a magazine wanted John for a cover or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I would drive him round for that. You know, and, and we often just handled details of it. Or, mm. but what about in your other roles? Like, what about in the in the magazine trade? Yeah, as well. well. I was really lucky with musicians. Like, you hear some of the horror stories of people on with sometimes the artists who are. Uh, signed to multinational labels they're just incredibly um, they start acting like ch large children you know mm. and just make stupid demands and you know records albums twice and mm -mm. people just become you know big sulking children when they were the multinational label whereas if they're with an independent you know they often just really pleased to scrape through and you know get the NZ on air grant for the video and find enough money to um, pay for the recordings yeah and, yeah 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 and you're also like ahead of the wild side stuff the early record stuff that you did you had you're, you've got an important um, foothold in, in New Zealand hip-hop yeah well you know up up posse and mm. MCOJ and rhythm slave the funny thing is that with up up posse we had entered them for the Rynet rock awards which had one top category and I think in the final year Jay Clarkson won the top category we went after that 
you know, that was 40,000. We were after um, one of the 10,000 grants. And if you're on an indie, you were sort of classified as unsigned. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought so mm-hmm. anyway. See, so I went ahead and recorded on 24 track the Up Heart Posse album, sort of knowing I would get the $10,000 grant because, like, young people, Maori members of the group, probably, or Pacific Island, we had young women, you know, Terry Moana. We just had every area covered. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get a grant. And, um, and because somewhere they actually found young Maori or Polynesian gay mm. women, <laughs> we, we lacked a category. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't get the 10000 but I'd already spent it, um, which is, you know, a problem yeah. you face in life. Um, and the point was, the tapes, they'd already done it writhe in Wellington that I had sort of thought would be inferior because... You know, I'm thinking 24 tracks. Mm. Um, those Rise tracks might be better than what we released, even. I've no idea. I wouldn't know how to play them. Mm. But um, then with Wildside, the first successful album was Head Like Hole's debut, which was recorded at Rise mm. mm. in Wellington. Mm. And I had just discarded Up Up Posse at Rise. Full, probably foolishly, you know. Mm. Anyway, mm. when do you um, bow out of Rip It Up, and how uh, does that happen? Oh well, in nineteen ninety four, because of our tax problems, National Business Review or the publishers of National Business Review, Barry Coleman, purchased Rip It Up. Yeah. Barry Coleman, I think, is he may have been in Australia at the time, and his brother or the team running mm. it may have done the crucial purchase but he would have agreed to it yeah and and we went through and i stayed there till 1998 um there was a slight problem that i was running wild side but like i, I would only put she had on the cover when they released an album you know yeah i was just gonna ask how did you how did yeah. you uh, manage that conflict? yeah well i was pretty strict like you know if you've got friends if you're editing a magazine and your friends put a record out you might be harder on them mm. than people you don't know yes and in the case of she had we certainly were only going to put them on the cover when an album came out as would be the rule with everybody because we were trying to help people sell albums you know um which is nothing wrong with wanting to help new zealand music expand you know and the big boys get a little bigger sometimes you know um and um it was when I left in 1998, like basically um, Barry Coleman sold it just to get rid of it to um, the boyfriend of one of the writers on National Business View. Mm. And I was probably offered it for a dollar. Well, I know I was, but I would have had the debt. I would have had the staffing to pay. And so I just wanted out really. Mm. And then immediately it got bailed out by Warner Music and... Sony, so they would choose the covers every second issue. That's right. So um, I think it went, she had um, Bowrunga's band. Mm. What are they called? Uh, Stella. Stella. So when she had Stella, Feelers, Stella, <laughs> she had 
<laughs> Stella. Yeah. <laughs> or someone else. Felis. She had, so I had gone by then yeah, and she yeah. had what, you know, on the cover every second yeah. issue for a while, yeah. but I wasn't there by then. Yeah. What was it? And, and But I didn't mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I was still working with she. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it works out okay for you, but yeah. but what was it like letting go of Rip It Up? Had you had enough? Were you? Did you feel chewed up and spat out or do you feel like yeah, you'd... Um, um, you'd let yourself down or, you know, what were the feelings around that? Because it's a long, not only is it a big part of your life, but it's how you established yourself. Yeah. Um, your, your identity is wrapped up in it. I mean, to this day it is. Yeah, probably. Um, I, I'm just trying to think that era. Well, my heart was probably heavily into Wildside and I had this optimism that we were going to move on to greater things and... Mm. There was a problem with, like, I was so, I was so working so hard, you know, that I was doing way too much, you know, both, because at one point in about 1994, 95, we revived Shape magazine, so I was editing Shape, right. Rip It Up, and running um, Wildside too, and, um, you know, I don't know how I was staying alive, really. Uh, you know, in terms of, well, I was just overworking, which is... Mm. What were you indulging in outside of music and work? Well, well, I was a workaholic, see, so I'm not indulging in anything other than going to live bands and... Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, if, you know, my, um, my stimulants are coffee and, you know, real mm. basic stuff. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. And... So when you do finally dip out, when it's removed from your care and it's a weight off your um, shoulders, mm. do you, apart from the vested interest of Shehad being on the cover and so forth, are you able to really follow the magazine or do you not want anything well, to well, do with it? Well, it changed ownership yeah. a bit. And, yeah. um, uh, and editorship as well. Yeah, editors and owners. So... Uh, one editor got me into sort of, I think, revive Elvis Slag, even though yeah. I wasn't. There were many writers of Elvis Slag, and I was only one of the contributors. So I think I, I revived that briefly with um, one editor. And then David Rose um, bought it, and he made it the big sort of perfect bound yeah. large format and i contribute a history column there that's right you know <clears> but you can con you can contribute to something without actually reading <laughs> the uh the publication yeah well i would probably not um like um life's busy so i'm not yeah. totally aware of i mean what... i wrote for north and south for years and probably only read a couple of issues yeah example. i probably once rip it up got really big um I wasn't too aware of everything else that was being yeah, written. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, you know... I, but clearly no um, sourness, because oh, no. your name's still attached to it, in that you're yeah. in print with it, yeah. Yeah, like I would have been, when they had to do some sort of anniversary, yeah, you know, yeah. I was happy to yes. sort of just, you know, do a breakfast TV or whatever and get yeah, a bottle yeah. of red wine for it or something. Yeah. I, I was happy to just do that. And at one point, uh, David Rose's company, um, I think he was still owner of it, 
satellite? satellite. Well, I think he may have left satellite. Oh. I'm not really sure. Yeah. But once again, the magazine was sort of offered to me for a dollar. Right. And um, <coughs> plus probably <death's laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. staff. And um, <laughs> and they let me look at the financials a little bit. Not that I would necessarily understand those. But I made a list of the reasons why I didn't want to own it. And I don't think I could think of a reason to own it. And um, But the thing was about the list of reasons why I didn't want to mm. own it, they would be the same reasons why I wanted to own it as a young man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like I would, like top of my list of not wanting to own it would be going to a record company record launch yeah. and drinking free piss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, Whereas... I, when you're starting out, that's the mechanism. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. Because you probably viewed these as sort of, you probably, you may not now, um, there were points where the people running the record labels were really cool and great to hang out with. And mm. When did that change? I'm not sure. I actually think in the early days of Rip It Up, it wasn't really the case that the record company people were necessarily called to hang out. Some were, mm, mm. but there was a point where, you know, some of your best friends uh, were, you know, the publicists. And yeah, yeah. Um, Warners, to this day, I really like a whole lot of those people. And I like, you know, at festival, I, you know, like Sandy Riches and Janet Dawes and, you know, at um, Warners, you know, Lisa, Vanessa and... Mm, mm. Um, Nikki and, mm. and then you know all those people um, one of the reasons why Wildside folded I think was there was a there was a point where going to she had gigs you'd be going with the people from um, you know Kath Anderson and the BMG oh, yes. staff yes. and you know Dylan and all these people it was all sort of they're a little bit younger than me but you're going with your friends and it was just a great social night really and then when you're going to see a wild side back from what band from Wellington and about the only person you know is some a friend's son you know it's like <laughs> and the red wine is shit at the king's arms and like um and most rock venues you go to, they try and pour the red wine that they opened a week before yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, I thought Scott Cara did a good job editing Rip It Up. Yeah, it would have been sure. in the satellite days. Oh, well, most of them, yeah, most yeah. of those guys did. Um, yeah. I mean, I had a little bit of involvement then, which is probably why I remember it yeah. the best, because I was doing some... Um, he got me to interview um, Alex Van Halen and did a giant spread about Van Halen, sort of out of nowhere. I, yeah. I presume the catalogue was being reissued or something, but it wasn't to do with any particular anniversary. Mm. But I remember thinking, you know, that was cool that they mm. wanted to do this giant spread mm. on on a band that was arguably pretty uncool then yeah at one point i technology wise i had trouble recording phone interviews and so i was handwriting them and i got stuart copeland from the police with a reissue and talk about intelligent and oh, witty yeah. and he was saying and all this witty shit and i couldn't <laughs> write it down fast <laughs> enough and you know trying to remember what he said and 
and like when you get some of those older people um like uh the funny thing was that like i did Stuart Copeland because the staff didn't want to know about anyone from police mm. and when John Russell went to interview uh, the drummer from uh, Foo Fighters Dave Grohl oh the drummer oh no the, the drummer yeah Taylor Hawkins yeah yeah um, he just looked at Rip It Up and said Stuart Copeland <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because I must have put them on the yeah, cover yeah yeah I mean, must have mentioned it yeah, yeah. in a byline on the cover. Yeah. And so some of those older people, and and one of the reasons why um, John Russell and I went to see um, Def Leppard was John knew that I'd done a Joe Elliott interview, and if Joe Elliott agrees to an interview, you have trouble getting him off the phone, and he's right. so interesting yeah. and good. So John knew that, so... On some album that everybody was ignoring, he just rang up uh, Phonogram or Universal by that stage, I guess, and said, can I get a Joe Elliott interview? And they asked and they got it. So he mm. also got a great interview with Joe Elliott. So. Yeah, actually, I, that show, I, I went up and asked if I could interview one of them before the show. And they said, yes, but we won't know who it is until they get here. You'll just have to be prepared to talk to whoever. And they thought it was going to be Joe, and then they said it'll either be Joe or it'll be the drummer, Rick Allen. And it's like, I love talking to drummers. Mm. So, and he came, so Rick Allen came down and chatted with me, and he was amazing. Mm. Really chatty and really interesting and bright and yeah. all of this. And I had to watch the person from Juice TV ask him beforehand, if, you, if your band was an animal, what kind of animal would it be? <laughs> and it's like, well, they've already got fucking leopard in the title. Like... <laughs> so I think he was probably just happy to talk to me afterwards because I didn't ask him that or what his favourite colour was but you know yeah. fuck um, you're talking about interviewing people I mean Stuart Copeland I've I've heard him interviewed a bit because I'm a fan and yeah he's he's he matches what his playing is like just innovative and bright and, and a mile a minute yeah he's he comes from a super intelligent family, family you yeah know, yeah you know CIA yeah so I mean they're and worse than that music industry people too yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um, he's um, but who else who else matches that sort of thing for you I mean you must have talked to too many people to even remember yeah well Quincy Jones for sure but there's just weird things where um, like I almost need to write down the, what were the great interviews because why have you not done this well, Why hasn't someone asked you to put this together in a document, a book? Yeah, well, I, I tend to just forget. I forget. But the, I have these weird ones that immediately come to mind. Mm. And it's the really friendly people. Yeah, yeah. Like Pat Benatar and Lita Ford. Um, and Lita Ford from what was her group? Um, uh, the Runaways. yeah. And then, of course, she was a solo artist. Yeah, That's well, when I yeah, interviewed yeah, yeah, her yeah. as a solo artist. Yeah. And the, it was just sort of so casual. And um, and I'm we're talking away, and then she says, oh, what's the weather like? What sort of clothes should I bring? Or something to New Zealand. <laughs> and, you know, no one's asked me what clothes to bring to anything. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not known for my style tips. <laughs> so, but just... And just... Um, I had a friend um, 
well, not a friend. One of my staff members would transcribe my tapes in those days because I'm, um, and she listened to, um, and Pat Benatar said, what a lovely woman, <laughs> you know. And, um, and, and another artist that, um, a New Zealand artist, she listened to my interview and just said, I would have punched her out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's sort of, yeah, so you... Yeah, yeah. How did you um, develop your <clears throat> style with interviews and how did you know you were getting okay at it well, and I don't good think at it? I was far better when I was younger. Yeah. That's the problem is when you're young, you're full of questions. Mm. And then when you get older and a bit jaded... Mm. You um, talk to everyone, so you You're think... sitting there thinking, oh, what the fuck can I ask them? Because, you know, I, you know mm. I'm not interested. Yeah, well, if you've talked to everyone, you've had every kind of answer, but yeah, in but, a way... but I haven't... I wasn't a major no, writer No, I know, I know, sense, I know. So yeah, was, yeah, um, yeah. But still, by longevity... By sheer amount of time at the board, you've ended up talking to a lot of people. Yeah, and sometimes I've been a disaster. I was a disaster with Sil Sylvester. You yeah, know, the, yeah, um, yeah. And I was a disaster with Luther Vandross, and I, I thought I was one of his biggest fans. But Oh, man, that's a particular kind of crush, isn't it? A crushing blow when, when it's someone you like and the interview doesn't go well. And do you think it was your fault? Yeah, I partly. I just couldn't... Or? Like, in the the problem was, um, like, Sylvester didn't answer the phone and um, at the correct time. So I phoned a half an hour later, and mm. so not expecting it to... He probably thought the interview had, you know, gone missing. Yeah, yeah. So he answered it and didn't really want to talk to yeah. me. And basically, he was focused on what should he wear... To do backing vocals on Aretha Franklin session, <laughs> which is probably free way of love. Yeah. So what a bad time to be talking yeah. to him. And I'd I'd read this interview on Enemy, which was so much fun and talking about going shopping and stuff. And um, I hope I'm not getting mixed up with Lisa Vandross. No, his interview is about going shopping too. Um, it was a disaster. Hmm. It's yeah. it's awful, isn't it? When you when you either it's particularly awful when you get it wrong. When yeah. you think, well, I could have done better at this, but but everything can be riding against you. You can be super prepped, you can be super passionate about the idea that you're gonna do a good interview, and then you can get handed the lemon of they're just not into it. You yeah. were the four hundredth person they talked to, and yeah. they were convinced they had to do another. And interview. also, Luther Vandross had got really weird with his music by then. It right. was really uh, it had gone off almost. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. His manager was sitting in on the interview at the same time, and when it ended. Um, the manager said, oh, apologies, I'm sorry, that was so awful. Oh, no. Having yeah. to put up with me. Yeah. And I heard it all. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't really... Some interviews I've done, um, two of them happened in January, like Blur, Damon Albarn, yeah. who we needed George K to do it because he's so good and it's his area. And George K used to holiday in central Otago, and the only phone was the pub. And I could phone the pub, but I'd lost the pub number, so and it's before email, so yeah, I yeah. had to do it. And it got reprinted, I think, by 
it wasn't Scott Carr, it was one of the other editors as a fight, and I just shouldn't have been doing it, you know. Yeah. And, and you too, like, our, we had a staff writer, and I rang him up about, we'd, we were offered the interview after the show at Western Springs, and Chad Taylor just said, I'm on holiday, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all right. I, I, did, I, I did that okay, but yeah. I, I, someone else should have done Damon Albarn. Yeah, I did a Damon Albarn interview about 10 years ago, and it's the most nervous I've ever been before an interview. I, well, was, he's so, I, was, he's I thought so, he'd be tough. He's, no, I, it, it's just he's so intelligent. Yeah, that's what I mean. I and I had tough. a boring bunch of questions Mm. I wasn't the, I wasn't a Blur fan enough to know the good questions to ask. Yeah, yeah. I had the same thing you described where, uh, well, it wasn't at his end, but they kept ringing me back and putting the interview off. It was a yeah. Saturday, and that was 10 o'clock, came and went, 10.30. Yeah. Oh, well, it'll be 12 o'clock, it'll be 2 o'clock. Finally at 4 o'clock, and I'm just like, I don't even want to fucking do this. Yeah. And then I get him on the phone, and we've got friends around, and I have to go down the other end of the house, and I'm just like, fuck, just, just make the stop kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. And then I get a really, really good interview from him, yeah. and he's really chatty and warm and friendly, and yeah. um, it goes well. And so you never know in that mm. sense, do you? Like, you can pr be worried about the worst thing, and it can go well. Yeah. Do you, I mean, um, you mentioned Chad Taylor then. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, uh, do you enjoy thinking about the careers you helped foster, the people that yeah. passed through, like the legacy of Rip It Up. Yeah, that's great. But I knew those guys were extremely talented writers when I was working with them. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, like but I, that's, that's part of the thing, the talent spotting yeah, aspect. Because yeah, yeah. you took John Russell, Russell Brown, Chris Burke, you know, Chad yeah, Taylor, who They're else? nearly all established. Yeah. Chad, Chad I got in actually as a designer, you know, to help with graphics. So I had no idea who's an even better writer. Mm. Um, I went chasing um, Russell Brown. But I recall one, I, I'd worked right through the night and I was meant to write, because I was there for Spillians, I was meant to write the intro to a cha-cha interview or something and... And at that point, I was a bit angry that my staff got to go home and sleep at night, and I was working through the night. And Russell Brown turn, turns up as hungover as usual. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, this intro, you know, could you write the intro? And he went away 10 minutes later and just handed me sublime intro. Mm. That just would make me more angry. <laughs> I always he just did something in ten minutes I couldn't do in two hours. I always remember the the Russell Brown sort of line of you know being too pissed to see the opening act or you know forgetting that to turn up at the right time. Well, that 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 was formative for me as a you know like, as an excuse when I got into writing. Yeah. Like if you missed the opening act, you thought of the number of rip it up reviews where Russell Brown had gone. Well, I just didn't see them. I don't care. Well, he was a great writer, but he could do alternative and he could go drinking with the mockers and exponents. That's mm. what I needed. And I guess there are lots of other talented people that mm. move through rip it up, not just writers, but certainly like for me, reading it right through the nineties, that's where I first heard and. Uh, a lot of these names, and also like, yeah, just saw writing about music done in New Zealand. It yeah. was important, you know. It was important because I I'd read Rolling Stone and whatever else I could get my hands on as a young kid. Guitar mm. World, Modern Drummer, all sorts of things from overseas. But mm. just the, the you know, this must have had a big impact on 
people, not just myself, but lots of other people that have grown up to write about music in this country. Someone like George Kay did phone mm. interviews so well. And like I did, I got Kerry Buchanan to do James Brown because yeah. we had the delay on the phone and it's so hard to talk to some of those older yes. people. Yeah, yeah. And um, I got uh, George Kay to do Tina Turner because... I just knew she'd be showbiz, and I, I can't get through the showbiz thing, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, even quite recently, I said no to Gladys Knight. I, I said I'd just prefer to play her music, because I don't think I could get through the showbiz thing. Mm -hmm. So George did uh, Tina Turner, and had fabulous questions like, um, I read that Ike Turner says you prefer the company of white people. Wow. And she she was fine. Just said, "Look, yep. um, I, I'm in the music business where you don't uh, choose the mm. color of the people you work with," and uh, so she was fine. And uh, I couldn't do that. And, yeah. and then um, with um, George K talked to Mick Jagger, and um, Mick Jagger said, "You know, he should have asked him the same question. Do you prefer the company of white people?" <laughs> um, no. Well, um, we had got a Keith Richards interview the same uh, issue and the Mick Jagger concert people didn't know and I was going to put them half oh, and half this is on when the they cover. Were, this is when they were both solo. Yeah, 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 they're not talking to boring. each other. Yeah, fantastic. And, um, and, um, and I guess George had done both of them and um, Mick Jagger just said, if you mention Keith Richards once more, wow. I'm going to hang up on you. Yeah. And... Uh, George probably did. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I, I interviewed and Mick Jagger hung up on I interviewed Tim Finn and I mentioned that I'd spoken to Phil Judd. This was about twelve years ago. And the whole tone of the phone conversation just changed in that instant. Like yeah. he just felt this frostiness come over and then he went from being quite chatty to just very clipped answers. Weird. And it was I can't you know, the the context was sincere. It was just it was in the in in the context of discussing the early years of mm. Split Ends, and I kind of just went, you know, I mean, there's baggage there, but I wasn't trying to sort of one up him and suggest that I had some sneaky knowledge about him or anything like that. Mm. I didn't. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah, sometimes that can. But George Kay and Kerry Buchanan, two people I don't know at all, but I know their words. Yeah, the names that I know from yeah. Rip It Up, and I guess from um, you know Real Groove and yeah, a couple Kerry's, of other things too. Kerry's but. highest work would be uh, for Real Groove. Yes. Know. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But they're two people I don't know anything about them, but I've got huge respect for the work that they did. Whereas George's best work would have been Rip It Up in the sort of classic time, mm. sort of when I was editing, probably. Mm. But, and George would um, get on so well with um, Jim Kerr of Simple Minds. and um, He's a good person to interview, though. He's one of those... Yeah. I've talked to him twice. He's one of those... And Fergal Sharkey was so upset by George, he was sort of trying to get... Um, almost get George fired, if it was wow. possible. Because... Um, um, I'm not sure what he said, but... Um, Pissed him off. Yes, and um, uh, I once... At one point, I, I often got given the... I ended up with brand new acts, who often are quite good because... Yes. That they, that's fresh, and they can tell their mum they talked to someone in New Zealand, so it's all very exciting yeah, if you yeah. live in Britain. Um, and I spoke to the... I think the group were called Space in the neighbourhood, oh, yeah, yeah, and they yeah. were from Liverpool. Yeah. So I'd heard something about a soccer game in Liverpool, hopefully it was winning, 
But I just mentioned it and da da, and it got us off on good ground. And I told George Kay, and this is like um, 15 years into Rip It Up, and he said, Murray, how do you think I get the interviews out of the British acts? He, he always talks soccer first. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, Five yeah. minutes on soccer, and then you yeah. got these amazing interviews. And yeah, I remember talking football with Jim Kerr, because obviously he's, you know, owns a team. Um, <laughs> so he's massively into it. But, yeah, but, but ev- yeah, totally. every musician. Yeah, yeah. No exceptions, virtually. Well, a lot of, you know, what you've just brought up then is a lot of musicians actually that you interview actually love talking about anything but themselves mm, mm. so you even get people off on a great foot if you talk to them about some of the music that they love that they haven't made mm. right like and then then you can start to maybe shift it towards how that might have influenced them or whatever but they yeah. a lot of them don't for all the the cliche of a rock star going on and on about themselves I, I haven't found that to be the case very often no no the, the thing that you know, upset me. Uh, you know, at some point you do just really get bored when musicians are telling you they're trying to get a live sound in the studio. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There are just things that you don't want to hear again, you know. And, um, yeah. Um, so, I'm wondering how we finish off. I guess we should talk about the, the photographs, but before that, I want to know... Um, when you when you um, made it a thing to try and tick off some of these kind of legends that you've seen, you know, you talked about going to America and seeing, oh. you know, when did that become like a, obviously you collected up a few gig experiences anyway through yeah. being a fan and then through the magazine and stuff, but when do you start to go, I've got to go and see, you know, whoever. A hundred acts. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, that... that I was always pissed off with Rip It Up that I could get away maybe for a week, but I couldn't do something like go to the New Orleans Festival, Mm. you know, which is a two-week event, um, two weekends, I think. And some of my friends had gone there and seen a whole lot of acts, and so I couldn't do that because I couldn't get away from my job for long enough, and I couldn't afford it, Mm. you know. uh, So, um, and I really resented the fact that... uh, Edwin Starr and Junior Walker, who were two of my favourite acts, they had died. Mm. So um, I did make several trips to LA, Vegas, um, uh, circa sort of 2004 to 2010. And on one trip, I think I saw 45 acts. And now the, the way to see 45 acts, you had to go to the Monterey Blues Festival. You had to see five vocal groups at the Universal Theatre um, in LA and you had to see, you know, the Four Tops and the Temps in Vegas and the same weekend maybe Gladys Knight in Vegas at the um, Flamingo and and you had to choose between Smokey Robinson at the Hilton or Cameo in the suburbs, so I did Smokey Robinson. So... It, it, so, and, you know, there's these touring funk acts where you've got five funk bands or six. Mm, mm. They weren't all good, but, uh, I mean, a lot of them were. In Vegas, every um, one of the casinos in Vegas near the military base is called the Cannery, open and end the summer with free gigs. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they have thing. you know, once there we saw Mitch Wright and the Detroit Wheels who... 
decided to start with their 90s hits, then their 80s <laughs> Go hits, oh. then their 70s, and by the time they got the 60s, nearly all the audience had gone to bed. Yeah. Wow. But you just see some... In, even with the free concerts, you you did see some amazing stuff from the older people. Yeah, Vegas gigs are uh, incredible. I saw um, the Robbie Krieger band, mm. the guitarist from The Doors, and I went to it because it was a free show. Yeah. And I found out about it the night before. I, I can't like, believe it'd be free. <laughs> and it was free, and it was fucking incredible. Now, mm. I didn't... And it was just a Doors gig. Like, it was just him playing Doors hits. And his son took on the role of Jim Morrison, but... But respectfully, didn't try to be him. Just yeah. sang, you know. When when yeah. the, when it got to the instrumental passages, there was no poetry, and he just walked to the side of the stage and disappeared and had a yeah. cigarette, like he knew he couldn't. But he sounded pretty good. Yeah. And but shit, what a band! And 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 he played, um, you know, some of the like lesser known songs. Obviously, some of the things he had contributed to the group. Like um, I remember him playing "Peace Frog," which I've always thought was one of the best yeah. Doors songs. But you know, I didn't think I'd see one of the doors, <laughs> and it was no, really, and it was, and it was really good. It's it would be very rare for him to even tour. Yeah. Um, but I, I once saw for ten dollars um, the Family Stone, which was yeah. Sly's band mm. without him, and um, and I loved it because I I don't want some, you know, guy that's totally offers. You know, missing out on life due to drugs. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want him there. No, no. I mean, I, even a bad, and I think with those Vegas gigs in particular. But you know, even a a bad gig has some element of well, it isn't just the sort of uh, you know um, irony or whatever, but it has some element that keeps you interested, right? Yeah. There's something to be taken from any show. Yeah. Well, see those um, those. Well, I'm not sure about bad shows, but like the 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 Family Stone was around a swimming pool. That was weird. You know, they were one end of the, they were you know in the yeah. one, one end of the swimming pool, and we everyone was in. There were seats, but there were yeah whatever. That was strange, but um, yeah, the I've just forgotten what I was thinking there. Um, Oh, I did. I did see some great stuff in those times. Mm. That were those trips, mm. and um, uh, you know, it was really, really special. So, and but, the, but those Vegas things—they don't exist now. No, no. Like a friend is. I was going to say it's a few years. Since yeah, 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 yeah. A, a friend of mine had said um, maybe, oh, it'd be great to come along with you on one of those trips and to see all the acts. And 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 the next year, I said to her, you know, well, I'm going, and you know. And she said, oh, no, it's not convenient this year. And um, a couple of years ago, she said to me, oh, well, that, that might be a good idea, you know, to do one of those trips. And I, I just said, they're all dead. Yeah. They, they're not yeah. around. Like, I have, the last couple of times I've gone, I've seen a sum total of maybe two acts. Mm. Because there's, like, last time I saw Diana Ross, um... Cost about three hundred USA. What sort of shape was she? No, in, no, one hundred and fifty USA. Well, she was pretty fabulous, but it was partly because the band was unbelievable. Yeah, of course, yeah. possibly the best band, one of the best bands I've ever heard. 
If you isolated her vocal, yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah. I was trying not to do that. But but it but it worked. Oh, yeah, enough. it worked. But yeah. she was on stage. It felt like forty minutes. Yeah. I think it was slightly longer. Yeah. She was pissed off about a few things. It was first night of a season. Right. You know, like yeah, yeah. Um, so it was first night in that venue. They had been on tour, mm. and an- another year I'd saw, like maybe four years back. Uh, um, the OJ's open for Gladys Knight or something like that. The OJ's are still good. Oh, they're amazing. Yeah, and we're yeah. just we're just sitting having a beer or something before going to the Hollywood Bowl seats. And um, I was thinking, I recognise that voice. <laughs> and of course it was um, it was the OJ's. Mm. And, um, yeah, they put a live album out about a year or so ago that I listened to and I was like, you know, it's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. And a new studio album, actually. Yeah, that yeah. new studio album, like, I yeah. considered buying it. I saw it on That's vinyl. That's all right. Yeah, but I, I just thought, well... You won't when play I'm de- Yeah, when <laughs> I'm won't. DJing, everybody just wants an old hit. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how are you going to not play Backstabbers, you know, instead of uh, yeah. something off the new album? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the... Um, so we, we booked for, um, I think, Gladys Knight... And the OJs, or I may have the combination mixed up. Mm. At they were doing two nights at the Hollywood Bowl, and my friend who was working in the business at the time phoned me and said, "Well, the same night we're going, Ronnie Spector's coming through and doing a club." Wow! This is just about three years ago, and I and I said, "Well, can we change the tickets?" And and she, because she worked in the biz, uh, she managed to get the Los Angeles orchestra people to change our tickets. So we saw Ronnie Spector in this club in Pasadena, and it was just fantastic. Mm. Um, you know, I, you know, she was three times the age of the backings, the the <laughs> Ronettes that were with her. But you know, that was. But you know, we saw three acts, I guess, that year. You know, I mean, with COVID, obviously. Uh, well, decimating America and, and changing things here, you're not going to go over there and see anything. And also stuff's not going to come here anywhere near, like anytime soon and anywhere near as much. Um, there's always regrets and there's always, as you say, like the, the, the era of music you're most interested in now in terms of ticking things off the list, they're, they're dying. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there, there must still be a few people you yeah. wished you could get to. Oh, well, there's young people like Leela yeah. James. Yeah. And I managed to see her last year at a free concert. And do you know what she did? This is just so awful to think. She she basically, she did about 20 to 30 minutes. or She then started just talking over her DJing Earth, Wind and & Fire and real obvious stuff. Mm. And we just got, we thought we'd just maybe better go and get in the queue for Uber early. And then while we're standing in the queue for Uber, she did start doing her hits, mm. I like. Mm. But she has a song called Music, which is just fantastic. And I, I've got several tracks, like Leela James uh, is amazing. But I, I could, I, I have trouble thinking of a, a, a young male soul singer that. Mm. I, I yeah, like. all those people that come out like Leon Bridges and stuff, I don't really get the fuss with that stuff. Well, apparently it's... Leon Bridges is really good live. Yeah. But, um... I just think, well, so what? Like, uh, who was that guy, um, Aloe Black, that kept yeah. coming out here? Quite a good live performer. 
But I mean, I don't want to listen to that stuff. Like, not more than once. It's pretty. Well, it's pretty derivative, and and it's just not there. Yeah. Well, I went to uh, that Soul Fest in Sydney because I was adamant it wouldn't get as far as New Zealand, but it did. The weekend later, it did do Auckland, and. Leela James was performing as I walked towards the venue. She was the first person, and I thought, oh, by the, I think she'd finished by the time I got in, but she was fantastic. So I did get to see mm. Leela James last mm. year. But a lot of the other ones, um, like Music Child, what yeah. is the point? Yeah, where, yeah. Where is a song? Yeah, totally. And I've got him guesting with Prince Live, <laughs> you know, on one track. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, so you've got the 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 photo. We better give this a plug. So the yeah. photo show has been doing the rounds. Well, it's it's only this it, particular one. Yeah, it's done Sydney, Auckland yeah. twice. Yeah. And now Wellington. So now so. it's in Wellington. It's a photo space, and it's on for a couple of months. Yeah. And I mean, these are old photos. Yeah. And it's the Queen Street V eight scene. Yeah. So yeah. And it's it's very derivative of. Um, American graffiti yes. night on the town cruising etc um, but what's special about it probably is there was significant protectionism in place so they were New Zealand assembled um, American cars right hand drive mm. and um, pieces of shit basically <laughs> and um, and they'd lost value they were gas guzzlers you know, like dinosaurs, and so the young people were getting them, and uh, prob you know somehow managing to pay for the petrol or fix them up. It's not the cars of today where people import something beautiful from the USA. Mm, mm. You 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 could only work with the cars that were actually assembled in New Zealand. So it, there's some beautiful looking cars there, but um, someone commented on Facebook that they look better and. Uh, my photos than they did in real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw that, and I thought yeah. that's probably 100% true. Know, but some of them I thought looked pretty good, but, um, and there's some car club stuff, you yeah. know, V8 car club that did look beautiful. But those photos, I mean, I, I've, I've seen the the photos online and the, from, from when you've hit the other shows to, to plug, and, um, they do evoke everything you just said, like the American graffiti thing, and the, yeah. just just the sort of, I guess that spirit of rock and roll, spirit yeah. of early rock and, and roll. And I I was cynical about art galleries and that in my youth, but it, if you put a whole group of photos, there's forty of them in a room or two rooms, mm. it, it becomes a sort of an installation or an, a bit of an event in itself. And I've been lucky to work with gallery owners that know how to hang stuff and make it look good. Mm. Um, send me off to to lunch, and they do it while I'm not there. And <laughs> what what's got you um, sharing these? Well, I I always wanted to um, you know do photo exhibitions, mm. and, and um, the the negatives for the V8s went missing. Like a a a group of them were borrowed for a book that didn't happen, and I, it took me ages to ch chase up getting them back. So I only got them back and. 2014 you know right yeah, yeah so okay. that allowed me to do the shows yeah yeah and have you got more ideas for more photo shows yeah. to come yeah well i want to bring a music one yeah. down to wellington and i want to bring in my own photos of the she had he like a whole era um so i want to bring in contemporary photos of mine mm. um and um but i i didn't shoot many on my old soul trips 
You know, I mm. twice I went to Betty Levette clubs, events where um, I probably could have had a nice camera there and they wouldn't have stopped me taking it in mm. the Viper Room and the Troubadour. Mm. And I didn't, I just looked at what was a glorious photos, but I didn't have cam. Oh, I might have had camera once, but not the time at the Troubadour. Mm. Mm. Um, you've already been thanked by loads of people and you've been officially honoured but I just want to um, finish by thanking you for uh, for the work that you've done you know all of it the you're the amazing photographer um, and your words and the ones that you have edited and curated are uh, a part of the reason that I sit here broke today still interviewing people <laughs> well thank you um, thank you for your commitment to music writing and it it, it is um, it is uh, uh, um, unfortunate that you know there aren't um, more opportunities at the moment you know mm, mm. Um, because I don't write much because um, unlike you I don't like giving it away for free <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but then I'm a, I'm a slow writer and it takes me so many hours to write yeah know? yeah I've got no choice in the matter now I'm yeah. compelled to do it and I'm realistic about yeah. what it's unfortunately worth yeah. but um, you need to start jotting that list down of uh, experiences and mm. uh, interviews because there's several books in you mm. and um, certainly some sort of book of memories around the yeah. people you've met and talked to is a must. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just very difficult in that, um, you know, sitting down behind a laptop is not a recipe for a long life, you yeah. know, in terms of you've just got to get out, well, you know, why try don't you, and be active. And why don't you outsource it to someone who just sits on their ass and writes all the fucking time, you know, maybe yeah. maybe you could maybe you could meet or have just met someone who could help you with that. No, I don't, <laughs> no, I do think that it's, um, I think I probably would have to as a bit of a control freak, yes. do it myself, um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I wonder what the tables would would be like turned like if you sat and uh, had tapes of yourself transcribed yeah how comfortable you'd feel no with that idea. i've no idea <laughs> it's 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 a funny situation we live in where um so many things are accessible sitting on our what on our laptop the yeah. whole world is there and um and if you were interested, say, in the USA election, as I was, what a time-wasting exercise. Oh, big time. Yeah. Well, look at this room we're in. I've been mean, apart from if I want to play a record, which I get up and do, but I, this is my spare computer, and it's set up wired to the TV and the stereo. Yeah. So I can switch between whatever I want to watch, and exactly like it when it, when it came to the American election, when I was getting bored of listening to the coverage, mm. but still driven to kind of keep an eye on it I would mute the TV and keep the numbers going and just mm. play some music I wanted to hear mm. and then on the little screen I'd start surfing you know whatever I want to look at like I'd just yeah. be scrolling through Facebook or whatever while I was waiting for one of the three channels to stimulate me it's fucking awful isn't it yeah <laughs> it's really good to yeah, well, stop it's and think just about like, it like um like I, I quite like trains also and uh, so I, every few years, I'll subscribe to Trains Magazine out of the USA for a couple of years, you know, and then maybe I won't for a while. And I, as part of my subscription, I get free access to the Trains website. I have never 
in the last 10 years used it because I don't need another reason to yeah. go online. It's another rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's insane in a way. There's all these interesting things I'd like to read about, but what's the use? Oh, I've got a New Yorker subscription. It gives me, like, the archives back to the 1930s or whatever. Mm. I mean, I've had a quick look, and it's just, you know, well, I'm not going to come up for air if I start, you know, looking into when, you know, <laughs> George Plimpton was writing for the for the New Yorker know, every, every issue for decades on end. I mean, I'm just never going to surface. I know it's it's tough where you know we so many things are sort of there, you know, well seated uh, at home, mm. vegetating. <laughs> let's uh, let let's end there and, and do some exercise. Yeah. <laughs> Bap, 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 bap.